As I welcome you, good afternoon. My name is Ephraim. I'm one of the elders, and it's a blessing to be with you and to be sharing the word this afternoon. Um, oh, God is good. So we have the final installment, um, barring any um, epilogues. Epilogue? Yeah, prose before any appendices, um, final installment in our, <laughs> brother Andrew's laughing at me, he knows what I'm like, um, in our considerations on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And, um, as, you know, as I've been walking through this, it's been a journey for me personally, um, and one I'm hoping that we are being encouraged and inspired and also challenged as a local church um, individually and corporately as to what this means to us and means for us as we seek to progress in the will of God um, this year and beyond. Um, it feels as though we're dealing with monumental issues that cannot be addressed and even impacted, you know, over the course of five sermons, five talks. Um, and my prayer is that the Lord would help us as we really give ourselves to work through and to apply ourselves to seeking him concerning these things. Um, at the end of our services, we tend to say the grace, as it's often known. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. And, and actually, um, some won't be aware that this is a direct quotation of Scripture, as you can see. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. And it can be easy for us to quote that at the end of a service on a regular basis to the point where it just becomes meaningless. And, and it's just uh, something we do ritualistically without actually appreciating what it is that we're saying and what it means to us. And so even when we consider the phrase, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, my prayer is that we will look at that phrase differently as we reflect on what it is the word is saying to us concerning our relationship with God and particularly our relationship with God the Holy Spirit. Let's pray and continue our wrestle. Father God, we thank you so much for the fact that you are committed to us and you have ultimately expressed this in giving your son to us and for us. And Lord, that's, that's the fundamental, that's the first base, that's the square one of all of this, Lord. That actually, if we would even want to consider what does it mean to have a, a relationship with and an experience of the Holy Spirit, we must first recognize that it is to acknowledge Jesus as Lord for this is the purpose and declaration of the Holy Spirit 
in all things at all times. And so we thank you that for many of us here, Lord, you have brought us to that place where actually we have heard the voice of your spirit, although we may not have known it was your spirit, and we have received the gospel and we have within our hearts repented as we've recognized who we are in front of you. And we have put our trust in who you are before us. And yet, Lord, as we look at your word, we recognize that there is, there is a sense in which our relationship with you doesn't start and end at our profession of faith, our repentance, uh, our baptism, and then that's it. We just kind of twiddle our thumbs. But nowhere to have an ongoing, living, fervent, vibrant relationship with you. And Lord, I know as I stand here, I need that in my life. And I know, Lord, as I stand here, knowing my family here as a church, Lord, that we need this in our lives. And so help us today, Lord, I pray. Help us, Lord. Energize our hearts by your spirit as we receive your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, my desire and motivation to kind of look into these things and talk about these things has been brought back. Um, it's been reignited. It's been refreshed on a regular basis. Because when I think about people who are struggling in their walk with the Lord, people who, are, who have even fallen away um, from the Lord and have turned to other things, gone back to old lifestyles, it forces us to ask the question, why? Why is it that somebody who would seem so grounded, so solid, so, not so solid crew, so solid, I have to remember my context. <laughs> 21 seconds. <laughs> I have to remember who I'm talking to. But just so substantial, let me say it like that, in the Lord would find themselves in a place where despite the, the, the theology, despite the knowledge of the scriptures, even despite the representation of the Lord, they would turn away and go back to a self-centered lifestyle. And, you know, when I think about that in recent times and I think about the, the individuals, and I've wrestled with that question, why, why, what, where did it go wrong, what went wrong, what was it that caused a vulnerability in their lives to go that route and to turn away? I can't get away from this sense in which there is something about our Christian experience um, and when I say our, oh, I don't mean in a universal sense as Christians, but in a more localized sense, 
there's something in our Christian experience that when I look at the scriptures, it suggests that it's lacking. Something's missing. And so start working it through. What is it, Lord? Where, Lord? Help, help me to see. Help me to understand. I'm open, Lord, because I know that in, with all of my best intentions and all of my best efforts, I haven't been able to reach those individuals with what they need. And so I need more than what I have. And then I'm pondering the text and I'm thinking, okay, where, where are we deficient in the light of Scripture? Because, you know, the Bible tells us that it is a mirror to us. And we stand before it and we see who we are. And as we see who we are, we know that, okay, we recognize those things that need to change. And in James, it says, look, you stand before the mirror and you go away the same. That's a problem. That's something wrong with that. The idea is we look in the mirror to see that we're doing all right, yeah? We look in the mirror to see what do I need to address before I come out of the house? I remember there was times I'd come out of my house and when I come back in, my grand said, hold on a second. You, you don't have any mirror? You, you, you mean you went out the house looking like that? As if, you know, it's not necessary. We've got mirrors in the house. Fix up yourself properly. And this time she don't know it's young people fashion. And so we have to look at the mirror if we want to really get an a, a appreciation for what is wrong. It gives us a clearer and more advantageous perspective. And so, as I begin to just walk through the text, and I'm just, all right, Lord, as I'm looking at these issues concerning what your word says about the personal work of the Holy Spirit, I have to say that there are so many ways in which I don't understand fully what it's saying in terms of what that looks like in practice. But I just know that we're not given to it in the way that your text suggests that we should be. And I'm not judging that by my past experience, but I'm just trying to wrestle with your word in a way that would look like faithfulness as a response. And I genuinely believe that that deficiency and that lack in our appreciation of an application of what God's word says about our relationship with the Holy Spirit has resulted in People feeling like, I know all this about God, but I don't feel him. I don't, I don't experience him. My fear is that we created an environment where we kind of fall, we fell foul of a different kind of ism. You know, sometimes there's isms and schisms in the church, right? People want to trumpet all different kinds of um, causes and pet, pet preferences as far as theology is concerned and so on. And sometimes we can find ourselves in isms and we don't, we don't really appreciate and understand that we're even in it. And so 
coming from my background, when it concerned the things of the Holy Spirit, my resistance was to those things based on my experience because it was really defined by emotionalism. Emotionalism. So there's an ism for you. And it was like, nah, I've been in that place and there's been some really good, healthy experiences, but at the same time, there's been a lot within that culture, within that community of Christianity that I experienced that actually it was just the deification of emotions. Emotions ruled to the point where if somebody had an emotional experience by default that was regarded as God. And so that would be the definition of emotionalism. Not being emotional, we're emotional beings, we're created with emotions. But where our emotions rule us. And actually, we would equate the spiritual work of God and the work of his spirit as being defined by how we feel. And so I was just like, you know what? That's not reliable and it leads to things that are unfaithful to the text. And so I had an aversion to that. I feel an aversion that pushed me to another extreme. And next extreme, I would say, is rationalism. Rationalism. Now, how would I say that? I mean, I wasn't just trying to learn philosophy and all kinds of ideologies and, you know, be Socratic and Platonic and, like, be very highly cerebral and intelligent and feel justified that I'm in the right walk as a Christian. I was pursuing the text, pursuing the Bible, pursuing a, a rightly divided word. But I was doing that at the expense of what the scripture itself says about genuine experience and interaction with God's spirit. D.A. Carson is a um, theologian. He's, he's a scholar, minister of the gospel, and he's probably regarded as one of the foremost living scholars um, from Canada. Um, I think he lives in America now. And he talks about the fact that as someone who believes in the showing of God's spirit today. He sees people have an aversion to that because their they're, they're endeavor is to try and domesticate God. You know, it's like somebody saying, I've got money and you know what? I, I want to I wanna get a lavish pet. I'm going to get a tiger as a pet. And you're like, no matter how much money, bruv, you've got, it don't sound like it matches any sense in that head because who takes a tiger? Who tries to domesticate a tiger? And then tiger's in the garden, on the chain, 
walks the tiger, takes it from a cub, walk, you know. And then one day the inevitable happens. The tiger reverts to its instinct. And someone in the family's gone. <laughs> you see, there's a sense in which for many in, in what might be considered the, the conservative evangelical school of Christianity or stream of Christianity, even those who would be on the, on the, the side of what they would call cessation, cessationism or cessationists, as in cease, not sensation, but cease, as in stop, where they would say the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not for today. There's this sense in which we just want to theologically calculate God. We just want to be able to take the text, break down the text, define the text according to doctrinal categories and theological principles, and then that's it. That's all we need. And the more we grow in that, the more we experience God. Because that is, the enlightenment is, is the experience of God, the illumination. As with both sides of the coin, there's truth present on both sides of the coin. But if that is the sum total of our view of God, then we are not actually truly interacting with the God of the Bible. So as we deal with these issues, we can encounter emotionalism versus rationalism. And what's the answer? The reality is that we are rational and we are emotional. That's the way God made us. But both are to be submitted to that which is biblical. Even those hard texts to understand even those texts that suggest something that we don't know exactly how that works in practice, but we know that God's ordained it, God's inspired it, and God does it. In our walk with God, we are not called to what is fundamentally a, a deistic or a deistic experience. Deism is belief in the existence of a supreme being, specifically of a creator, who does not intervene in the universe. And actually, the extreme of the conservative view sounds very much like this. God's given us his word. He sent Christ. We have everything we need. And it's almost as if, cool, we're left to our own devices. That's not the God of the Bible. And so, yes, we're rational. Yes, we're emotional. But ultimately, we're not trying to find another ism. We're just wanting to be biblically spiritual. Biblically spiritual. Now, Jesus said that this would be the case. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
John chapter 7, verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So there's a clear sense of the expectation that someone who believes in Jesus will experience an outflowing or an outpouring from their lives. Now, what is this living water? <laughs> Thankfully, it's explained for us. Verse 39. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this is John commentary, breaking it down for us. And so this outpouring is the outpouring of God's spirit. There is meant to be an outward expression of God from our lives. We're not meant to be just sealed containers. Okay, I've received the Lord. I've received the spirit. Put the lid on. That's good for me. I enjoy the benefits. And no, there's meant to be an outpouring, an outflowing, and an external evidencing of God's presence. And so in Ephesians, we're told this. Ephesians 5. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so you see the instruction, the imperative, be filled with the Spirit. But then what is the result of that? There is an outpouring, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. There's an outward expression of that being filled. Now, it's hard to, 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 to define exactly what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Because there isn't anywhere that says this is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And so I want to offer you a, a definition and then I want to qualify that definition with text. Because all we can do is let the Bible interpret the Bible. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? If I said to you, be filled with the Spirit, what does that mean to you? What do you expect to happen? How do you even expect it to happen? Is it something that just comes upon you? But hold on, the instruction is to us. Be filled with the Spirit. So is it something that I do then? Do, do I enable myself or is there something that I do to allow me to be filled with? Like, How does this work? All right. Here's my def. I wonder, both sides are actually not showing right, you know. Everything's in color when it's not like that on my screen. But anyway, you can see. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. All right, so here's my attempt at a definition. And it's my attempt here, so just take time with me. The energizing, empowering work of the Holy Spirit in those who are submitted to 
God's will slash word being synonymous, but just for the sake of clarification. And have a willingness to express their obedience by faith. The energizing, empowering work of the Holy Spirit in those who are submitted to God's will, slash word, and have a willingness to express their obedience by faith. And so there's a sense in which for an individual being filled with the Holy Spirit, there is a submission, a surrendering, even an emptying of ourselves. It's somewhat like John the Baptist in John chapter 3 saying, I must decrease and he must increase. Now, in that context, he's talking about reputation. People talking about me want to come to me and get baptized. Don't watch that. He's the guy. My name, like People should forget about me. It's all about Jesus. And yet we see that principle as a cardinal principle of truth. That we must decrease and that the Lord must increase. And so there's a decreasing of ourselves in submission to God's word. And there is a willingness to express that word, whether verbally or in action, as an, as an act of obedience. But it's done so by faith because we know that we can't do it ourselves. And so we are in a place of real reliance on the Lord and real commitment and conviction and dedication to actually do what God wants. Now, am I able to qualify this? When we look at the instances in which there's reference to people being filled with the Holy Spirit, you will notice that in each situation, there is a corresponding expression or outworking of that feeling. We don't read of people being filled with the Holy Spirit and that being something that is merely contained by them. But there is, as John 7 says, an outpouring in that instance. So the first place we'll look to is Acts 2. Acts 2, 1 to 4. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what? Began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So in that instance, there was an outward expression. There was an outpouring and it was them speaking in tongues. Now, if you've got questions about that and why doesn't that happen today and so on, go back to um, listen to this mini-series um, because I've, I explained that and I'm not going to take the time to do that now. Next one, Acts chapter 4 verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, what? Said to them. And so he spoke in the context where he was and they had been arrested and 
being called to give an account for their, why they're preaching the gospel and wanting to. Peter, in that instance, stood up, filled with the spirit, then spoke up and spoke out. There was an outward expression. Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't stop there. It wasn't an experience for experience sake. In prayer, oh, Lord of mercy, wow, God is present in this place. Did you feel that? Wow, tremendous. And that was it. They all went home. No. It says, and continue to speak the word of God with what? Boldness. An outpouring, an outworking, an outward expression. And so again, we see clearly that as it relates to being filled with the Spirit, it is directly and consistently tied to there being an outward expression, an outpouring. And so that may be in some kind of experience that can only be enabled by and can only be understood to have come from the Holy Spirit as when they spoke in other languages that were not their own. And we see that in, enlarged upon in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 when it speaks about the gifts of the Spirit. We're not going to talk about that now. Or it can result in actually a bold and open declaration of the gospel. But it results in something. And so, let me ask you, do you experience being filled with the Spirit? Now, it doesn't have to be, you know, like the upper room, Acts chapter 2, mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire. But do you have those moments when you just get this clear sense that actually God is working through you? God is speaking through you. I was um, chatting to a brother the other day, and he, he, he sent me a message. He said he had a terrible day. Just a, one of his worst days at work. But at the end of the day, he had this incident where one of his colleagues, who is not a Christian, um, they just got into a conversation about, about Jesus. And as this conversation unfolded and went on for at least 40 minutes, this individual, not a Christian, was completely open and receptive as this brother shared Jesus from the scriptures, from the scriptures to this unbeliever. And he was from the Old Testament to the New Testament, just showing how Jesus is the promised Messiah and the, the Savior, and the, and the Redeemer. And I remember him saying there was just such a clear sense of the Holy Spirit just directing that conversation. Even the circumstances, this unbeliever just listening and, being, and genuinely engaged for the whole of that time to the point where at the end of the conversation, the, the unbeliever even had tears in his eyes. And that sense of this is a God moment. There is an outpouring. There is an outworking. 
there's another dynamic to this. Um, one that gives us added perspective when we consider what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? There's no doubt that as we endeavor to seek to be filled, we ought to be seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit. As we look through the book of Acts, we see it's an experience that happens on more than one occasion in the lives of the saints. And so this is something that we, even as Paul says in Ephesians 5, be filled, it's an instruction for us today. We should be seeking to be filled. And as we're seeking this and we're praying for God's enablement, his empowerment, his energizing, let's be encouraged that actually, as much as we endeavor to be like Jesus in all things at all times, we are endeavoring to be filled with the Spirit. Now, Jesus said this, John 13, verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is something that is fundamental to being filled with the Spirit. Now, you might say, but Pastor E, come on now. You've, you've, you've taught us well, you know, Pastor. You said, look, don't allow a, a text to be taken out of context and build a doctrine on that because that's a pretext. In, it, in its context, that's not what Jesus is talking about. You'd be right. You'd be right. I see you right on that. But I feel that there is an example from the book of Acts that causes us to see that principle outworked and showcased even as it specifically relates to being filled with the Holy Spirit. So in Acts chapter 6, I'm taking it from verse 1. Let's see. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews, Jews who have adopted Greek culture. And the Hebrews were the true blue Jews, conservative, traditional Jews. And there was, there was a, a sense of um, discrimination taking place here. The Hellenists, the Greek culture Jews, were getting overlooked. They were getting marginalized. They were getting sidelined. As the food share was being distributed. And so verse 2, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. Hmm, all right then. Good reputations. But wait. Full of the spirit and of wisdom. Hmm. So not just guys who are good guys. Good reputations. Could look to and say, yeah, there's an upright guy. But there's a sense in which they are full of the spirit. And of wisdom. There's a sense in which there is a clear outward expression of God in their lives that affirms the 
that confidence we might have in them to, to do this sensitive work of bringing repair and restoration to this breach in relations. This relation, relational division doesn't just need good guys, but it needs people who are full of the spirit. You know, if we are going to endeavor to raise healthy, strong leaders, we have to do so with not just competency in mind. And this is a general, like, you, you in the workplace, you probably appreciate this. It's not just about having leaders who are capable, who are competent. They, they've got skills. They can do the job. But do they have character? Competency can be hindered and waylaid by bad character. And so they weren't just looking for people who actually, you know, turned up on time, faithful to do what they were asked to do and so on. But they were looking for people who, were, who had the spirit of Jesus, that, 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 that love and that wisdom and that sensitivity to be submitted to the Lord as they would interact in this difficult relational situation. And so they're appointed. And verse 5 we see, and what the apostles said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. First choice. First round draft pick, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now, we later on read about Stephen in the next chapter. He gets dragged up by the religious leaders and he confronts them with the uh, biblical theology of the gospel, taking it back to the, the fathers in the Old Testament and, he, and then he challenges them. But even before that moment, it was clear that God's hand was on Stephen's life. That he was a brother who was submitted to the truth of Christ and was submitted to the work of God. And then we see the other names added. The suggestion being that they likewise were of such character. And then it goes on to say what? Look at what the outcome was. They set, these they set before the apostles and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. And then look at the outcome. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. See, there was an outpouring. There was an outworking of these individuals who were full of the spirit and had some kind of external evidencing of God in their life to the extent that they were able to be entrusted with this relational difficulty. And having been entrusted with that and them actually fulfilling the expectation that God would use them because they're full of his spirit and submitted to him. And they're full of faith and they're ready to express that in ways that would be led and pleasing to God. And look at the result. Look at the outpouring. The word of God continued to increase. Praise be to God. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Now, 
There's so much that can be said about this. One of the things I always say is, look, you know what? This dispels this romantic notion that we have of the early church. We need to go back to the New Testament, be like the early church, as if they never had any problems, they never had any issues, there was never any kind of friction between the brethren, there was never any challenge to their love relationship. I mean, look what's going on. So let's get that kind of notion of, you know, there's some perfect church out there, even if it's back in the first century, and all we need to do is go and find it. Wherever the people of God are gathered, there's going to be issues right from the beginning. And yet, we can be encouraged that God has made provision. God has made provision that actually, as we rely on and submit to him and the work of his spirit, he will help us to work through these issues. As we remain committed to his glory, to his pleasure. And so I would say that that willingness, as we go back to our definition, that willingness to express God's will and God's word in obedience by faith is not limited to acts of power. It's not limited to the gifts, but it's also essentially expecting to be evidenced by fruit. That the fruit of God's spirit would be revealed in us in ways that pour out and impact the lives of others for the glory of Christ. And that there would be a fundamental commitment to declare and express the gospel. I mean, this is what Jesus said. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. And in all of these examples, we see that the witness of the gospel was forwarded and progressed. And so you cannot hope or pray to be filled with the Spirit. You cannot have that as an aspiration and as a desire, even as an intention, as you commit yourself resolutely, if you are not prepared for God to use you in declaring and sharing the gospel. It doesn't mean that you have to feel like you're capable. It doesn't mean that you have to feel confident. But that willingness is all that God needs. Somebody once said that God doesn't need our ability. That's not what he's looking for. He's looking for our availability. And if like Isaiah, we're willing to say, Lord, here I am, take me. Send me and trust that as we step out in faith, he is with us. It's in those moments that we will experience the energizing, empowering work of God's spirit. And oh, how we need it. Because there are so many of us as believers who find that we're trying to, in terms of experience, we're, we're trying to 
um, substitute, that's the word, substitute an experience of God with prescription drugs or non-prescription drugs, as the case may be. Um, I mean, when I look back, I see on numerous occasions individuals who they used to have a weed habit, they get into their walk, the walk feels dry, they just feel like this is long and they're dealing with the stresses and issues of life and it feels as though there's just no energy and motivation and you know what, let me just go hold a drill quick and allow that to, and then that kind of slip back into, I won't even just call it self-destructive. You know, the whole debate about legalizing marijuana and so on. We could have that debate. That's another conversation. But what I would say is it's futile. Because there is no substitute that will provide what God has purposed to provide by his spirit. There is nothing. And we see that, like, drink, sex, entertainment, console games. Like, you can give yourself to all of these things and be left empty and just dead. A moment of pleasure that's fleeting. Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. Futile. There's, there's nothing in them things for us. And when we find ourselves gravitating to the mini bar that we, that we keep under, you know, that kitchen counter, because we like to be discreet because we're believers, right? And you don't know who's going to turn up in your house. I just see what kind of drinks. I see you got that little, that little mini bar under the, the bottom shelf of that. Just for your personal liberty. liberty. I'm not hating on drink. I'm just saying it's not going to give us what we really need. What we really desire. Because I know you're not getting drunk from your mini bar. I know that you're just getting nice. Waved. <laughs> But there's an invitation. In fact, we are instructed to get nice on the Holy Spirit. And it means we have to be willing to step out of our comfort zone. It means we have to be willing to trust the Lord. Willing to express that in obedience and love and commitment to the glory of his name. And in this, we will experience the Lord. I can't tell you the amount of times when just been empty, bankrupt, had to stand and share God's word, go and speak to some situation of pastoral care, and just like, I can't tell you, it's, it's almost a constant, that constant recognition of, Lord, I don't have this. I just don't have it. But I know I have you. I know you're present. And even rather than cancel disappointment, rather than cancel Sunday, no preaching, quick grab someone else. Pastor Rob, help me. I'm just going to stand and trust that, Lord, you're going to provide the words. And God is consistently faithful, even and despite my unfaithfulness. And it's the work of God's spirit. 
And I can say confidently and categorically, if you have experienced God at work in your life, whether it's sitting under the preaching or whether it's through pastoral care and interaction or whatever way in the, in the life of this church, it's because God's spirit is present. And he's working among us. And it's so important that we, we acknowledge that and we also reverence that and not take it for granted or be dismissive concerning it or just overlook it. But that we would actually embrace God's work among us to the point that we would be even seeking for God to use us and, and to pour out of us like rivers of living water. I'm encouraged because constantly I'm engaging with individuals in the church and I just see the Lord at work. And I see despite difficulties and challenges, the Lord is giving just the right thing to say at the right time, in the right way, and just seeing maturity of, of Christ and just the expression of his character and that expression of love. And it's a blessing and it's an encouragement to be able to look and see that God is at work among us and within his people in that way. And yet, we also realize that just as in Acts 6, where the, the problem and the challenge gave rise to them having to, from an organizational point of view, from a systemic point of view, Consider how are we going to shepherd these people and how are we going to have some kind of ordered ministry that will allow for the virtue and verdure of God to flow. We too are working through that, those issues on an organizational, as a, on a corporate level. And so we're looking at Acts 6 and saying, all right, we need to now respond to this because there was order there and there was intention there and it was evidently according to the inspiration of God and it was blessed and it resulted in great fruitfulness. And so as a local church, we're in a season where actually, and we mentioned it in passing at our last members meeting, we're going to be making some appointments and making some changes because God has blessed us with mature, seasoned individuals filled with his spirit who we can actually acknowledge and affirm openly and publicly and give responsibility to, knowing that God is at work in them and his grace will enable them. And so you can look out for those changes. They'll be forthcoming. And we can be praying that the Lord would use them powerfully to bring about greater fruitfulness among us. Amen. I'm going to invite the team to come back. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit.
May the Lord strengthen and encourage you as your challenge to, to see and experience God working through you. And sometimes it will be in miraculous ways and sometimes it will be in ways that there's no razzmatazz, there's no sensation, there's no signpost, but you just have that inner sense. God's working, God's speaking, God's moving. Hallelujah. Just that, you know, I, I keep, act six, man. The way in which that situation could have been such a problem. I mean, deep divisions could have continued. And yet we see how the Lord brought reconciliation and, and healing through these individuals filled with his spirit. And of good reputation. Hi, let's stand. Father, thank you so much. Um, we don't want to just subscribe to a view because it's held by people we respect. We don't want to just subscribe to a view because that's what we know and that's been our experience. Lord, we want to wrestle with your word and be faithful because. There's no point otherwise. What is the point? What is the point of us bearing your name, calling upon your name, walking in your name, declaring your word, if we're not going to just be real with it, be honest, be committed, be responsive? May we not be a people who just do things because that's what we do. May we always be a people who are seeking to sail close to your wind, the wind of your spirit. And Lord, I do ask that you would help us. Help us to embody and personify our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to clear aside those things that are hindrances. Where there's unwillingness, where there's disobedience, where there's just a, a faithlessness. Lord, help us to just repent of those things we need to repent of. And help us to cry out to you for change. Change within us. You know, just to make it explicitly clear today, you know, you may be experiencing drudgery in your walk with the Lord. You may be experiencing temptation to just go back to old ways. You may have even succumbed to that to some extent or another. I challenge you, the problem isn't with God. The problem isn't with his word. The problem is with you. It's not because church isn't X, Y, and Z. It's not because the pastors are not X, Y, and Z. 
Philippians 2 tells us that God is at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So you must work out your own salvation. Let's work it out, saints. Let's work it out. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.